Hi, I'm Connie Loises. And this is Alex Gove. And this is Strictly VC Download. Happy Friday, everyone. It's been a busy news week. What with whistleblower Francis Haugen's testimony about Facebook's privacy lapses to serious discussions about whether the federal government should mint a trillion-dollar coin. Given all that's going on, let's get right to it. First up, Connie will share two stories this week that caught her ear, and then we talk to veteran Politico and venture investor Bradley Tusk, founder of Tusk Ventures, a VC firm that uses its political expertise to propel companies like Uber to the top. First up, the news. Jonathan Abrams, a serial entrepreneur best known for founding the early social network Friendster and the social news aggregator Nuzzle, has closed the debut fund that he raised with longtime partner Kent Lindstrom. Under the banner of 8-Bit Capital, it's a smaller vehicle with $40 million in capital commitments, but it represents the first time that Abrams has stepped into investing full-time, a decision he told us earlier this week was driven by founders who've told him directly they appreciate more and more the chance to work with former founders over people who are writing checks and haven't built a company, of which there are now many. Interestingly, despite Abrams' background in social media, he said it's not a sector that 8-Bit Capital is all that interested in right now, not with the pitches he's been seeing. As he told us earlier this week, Every week somebody sends us some new social media pitch. But when we started Friendster, it was a crazy idea. People thought the idea that people would map out their friendships online on a website and use their real name and photo was crazy. And it was counterintuitive, innovative. It started a new industry. And I'm waiting to see something that says crazy and it is innovative. And usually we just see things like, oh, we don't like Facebook. Speaking of new social networks, we couldn't help but wonder what Abrams makes of Clubhouse, the audio-only social network that captured a fair amount of mindshare during the worst of the pandemic, not to mention a lofty valuation, one reported to be in the neighborhood of $4 billion. On this front, Abrams told us he tried Clubhouse early on, but suggested the verdict is still very much out. Yeah, it did get a lot of attention. So Paul, the founder, invited me to be a beta tester last year in 2020 when it was so early that you'd go on mm-hmm. and it basically be just Paul. And then you and Paul would be chatting. <laughs> and Kent and I both tried it. And we thought, hey, this is cool. This kind of seems like an interesting thing. We didn't invest. The company raised a lot of money from Andreessen Horowitz. And we have a good relationship with, with Andreessen Horowitz. And we think they're very smart folks. But they invested at a pretty high valuation. It's mm-hmm. pretty interesting how that will play out. In the meantime, Abrams noted, he did back a clubhouse much earlier on that is a software project management company. And the confusion between the two same named companies was very real until the software project management company threw up its hands and changed its name. But not before managing to infuriate users of the clubhouse social network, which for a long time was only available on iOS phones. It's a great company doing very well. And the audio app did not have an Android app initially, but people would go into the Android app store and they would find the app for Clubhouse, the software project engineering company, which clearly is not the audio thing. And they would download it anyways. And then they'd be like, hey, I can't find Elon Musk talking. And they'd give it a bad, they'd give it a bad rating in the app store. In other news, Plexo Capital, which is both a venture firm and an outfit that backs other venture funds, is taking the wraps off of a program to help educate investors on the many facets involved in everything from forming a fund to raising capital to properly managing those assets. 
It's not the first program of its kind, but it's among the first to help first-time emerging managers without asking for anything explicitly in return, says Plexo Capital founder Lo Tony, who we talked with earlier this week. He says the idea was born of his own experience, creating his own fund after leaving an investing role at Google Ventures, the venture unit of the corporate giant Alphabet, where investors are provided legal and finance and operations support, and where, of course, they never have to fundraise because their parent company has more money than most countries. Recalls Tony. When I went out to start Plexo Capital, I realized, okay, I was in this luxurious position and now I'm in the real world where I have to put together the fund, forming the fund. I've got to go raise the fund and then I have to manage the fund. To help the many others who are entering into full-time careers in venture capital and who know even less than Tony did, this platform, GPX, has enlisted the help of a number of esteemed VCs and LPs who have recorded freely accessible educational modules on the art of fundraising and pitching. It's also committed to working with small cohorts of emerging managers in a deeper way, including educating them about fund administration and how to pitch their fund and to whom exactly. The program is primarily for first-time managers or even people on their second fund, but Tony says any and all are welcome to access the free content, and he thinks they shouldn't be embarrassed to do so. This is is a journey. This isn't a static process. You know, I'm still learning myself, and I've had the fortune of having great advisors. So I think that there is no shame in wanting to be intellectually curious and learn even more. Next up, our interview with Bradley Tusk of Tusk Ventures. But first, a word from our sponsor. This episode of Strictly VC is brought to you by Tegas. Don't start diligence from scratch on every new name. Instead, get a head start with Tegas. It's the only platform that offers instant access to 20,000-plus investor-led expert calls on public and private companies, from seed stage to IPO. See why so many leading investors rely on Tegas to scale their research. Try it for yourself at www.tegas.co slash strictlyvc. That's www.tegas.co slash strictlyvc. Bradley, I'm so glad you could join us today. It's always such a delight to talk to you. I wanted to start off a field from what we usually talk about because it was in the news. Your candidate in New York who lost, Andrew Yang. I saw that you were blamed. I was just looking around before jumping on this call and I saw afterward that you were blamed by, quote, multiple sources who said it was your team that was to blame for his disappointing finish. I just wondered, how do you feel about that and what went wrong? Look, whenever you win a campaign, you get the credit. So if you lose a campaign, you deserve the blame and I'll take it. I recruited Andrew into the race because I felt like New York City just needed a better option than the people who were running for mayor. We've had eight years of Bill de Blasio, who has been a pretty abysmal mayor. I think most people who probably listen to this podcast would agree with that, certainly very anti-tech. And to me, when I think about what made Mike Bloomberg such a good mayor, it's really that he just put together the best possible team you could have. He hired people solely based on talent, without any regard to politics whatsoever, insisted that all the people he hired or do the same. And as a result, thousands and thousands of people who would normally never work in city government showed up at city hall or showed up at the agencies and then had the freedom to come up with ideas and take risks and try new things. And that's what led to most of the success 
of the Bloomberg administration. And I felt like at the very least, Yang would be able to do the same thing in the sense of he really would hire based on talent. He'd be able to attract really talented people in some ways because no one really supported us institutionally. We wouldn't really owe anybody anything. And I felt like we had the opportunity to put together a super talented administration that almost no matter how things went from there, the city would be a lot better off than if a bunch of the political hacks kept getting hired. And so when we started the race, my analysis and the, the polling confirmed this was it was about recovering from COVID. And Andrew was someone who had experience as an entrepreneur, experience in business, was a great cheerleader for the city. And the question was, who can lead us out of this crisis and this pandemic? And he was a really good choice for that. But halfway through the campaign, two things happened. One, the vaccine became available, which is a great thing. But all of a sudden, the voters' sensitivity to COVID went way down, right? Mm -hmm. You know, once you're not worried about getting it, it feels, I'm sure everyone here probably mostly listeners have been vaccinated. You kind of remember how you feel after you got that first shot. It was like, oh, I'm going to probably be fine now. So the air kind of went out of the balloon. And at the same time, violence and crime really spiked in New York City. So the zeitgeist shifted from COVID recovery to crime and violence. And Eric Adams, who won the race, had been a police officer for 22 years and really was just far and away the candidate most associated with being able to deal with that one issue. And he won. And my hope is that he will be a good mayor. I think there's some signs that that's the case. And so I'm rooting for him. That's good to hear. I did see that Andrew just announced yesterday that he's leaving the Democratic Party and has changed his voter registration to independent. Yeah, I would say I, I totally get it. I'm an independent. I left the Democratic Party, too. And I would agree that both parties are just totally broken and corrupt. With that said, having spent some time in the independent movement in politics, it's really hard to create a third party. And because voters are so tribal these days and they're so loyal to their base and their politician and they hate the other side so much that the Republicans going to get a certain amount of votes in any given jurisdiction. The Democrats guaranteed to get a certain amount of votes. And typically speaking, there's just not a lot, enough votes left for an independent to win. So I, I support what Andrew's doing. I think it may come about through a slightly different way, which is less around the creation of a third party and more around the splintering of the existing party. So you see right now this constant warfare within the Democratic Party between progressives and centrists. Ultimately, the reason they're fighting is they shouldn't be in the same party. If you are a socialist, it's not, not my ideology, but it's a legitimate ideology, but that's very different than kind of a mainstream centrist Democrat, right? And same thing, if you are a libertarian or ultra-Trumper, that is a different ideology and a different perspective than kind of a mainstream pro-business Republican. And I think what might happen is as the warring shifts from party against party to intra-party, eventually that will lead to people saying, okay, you know what, screw this. We'll start our own party completely, whether on the left or the far right. And ultimately, if we end up with three or four parties because of that, it would have the same impact of what Andrew's trying to accomplish with independence. What he's trying to do with an independent party or I'm trying to accomplish with mobile voting, it's all really the same thing, which is how do you make it more feasible for politicians to compromise, to get things done, to not just take a hard line because that's what the base wants to hear, that's what MSNBC or Fox wants to hear, and just have this endless polarization and dysfunction. So I think everyone's trying to solve the problem different ways, but we're all trying to achieve the same thing. And I want to talk to you about mobile voting, but I am just curious, what was the tipping point for you? When did you leave the Democratic Party? Um, I left about a decade ago. Mike Bloomberg eventually did run for president in 2020, but kind of flirted with it uh, in 2016 and 2012 and 2008. And 
I think in 2012, I was signed up to be the campaign manager if he did run. And I felt like if, if I was running a campaign, he would have run as independent at that point. I was running the independence campaigns for president. You know, I should be an independent too. And, and then more than that, I just really didn't feel like either party cared about anything other than their own power, which is fine. That's the nature of politics. Mm -hmm. But if Chuck Schumer or Nancy Pelosi or Joe Biden are making decisions for their own benefit, that's okay, but there's no reason that I should be expected to go along with them, right? It's got nothing to do with me. And so I just felt like given that no one's really looking out for the average voter at all, why would I pledge my allegiance to either party? Right, right. I have to ask you, when it comes to mobile voting, it's just remarkable to me. This NPR headline, I think it was out the week before last, and it was titled, The Push for Internet Voting Continues, Mostly Thanks to One Guy, That One Guy Being You. Yeah. <laughs> Is it getting lonely? I mean, What's going on that more people are not joining you in this effort to get Americans to vote on their phones? It's a tough fight. It's funny. I actually announced the whole plan at Disrupt maybe four or five years ago now, and we've made a pretty good amount of progress. So we have funded elections in 20 different jurisdictions across seven different states where people have been able to vote in elections on their phones. It's either been deployed military or people with disabilities. They've all been audited by the National Cybersecurity Center, all come back clean turnout on average has doubled. And so we were able to convince a bunch of election directors to at least try out this new idea, simply because average turnout in most primaries is 10 to 15%. And because of gerrymandering, the primary is usually the only election that matters. And so if the only people who are voting are the people who are the most ideological on the right or the left, then what do you expect the politicians to do who want to stay in office, right? They follow whatever the needs are of the people who elected them, because that's what they need to do to keep their jobs. And that's human nature. That's rational. If we want different outputs, we need different inputs, right? If you give politicians incentives to compromise and get things done, they'll do so. But that's only going to happen if primary turnout is 40 or 50 percent. And, you know, I started really thinking about this when back in the early Uber days, when we ran all these campaigns to legalize Uber and ride sharing. And the way that I'm sure you remember that we did it was we mobilized our customers through the app in every single jurisdiction in the country. And we won in every single jurisdiction in the country. And I remember at the time thinking, okay, these couple of million people who have tweeted or texted or emailed or in some way told their state senator, their mayor, their city council member, I want this ride sharing thing. Don't take it away from me. Those people probably never vote city council primary or state legislative primary or something like that. And it's not that they were too apathetic to do anything, it's that they're not going to take time out of their schedule on a random Tuesday and miss work or not take their kid to school or whatever it is to wait in line and vote. And so it's not a question of their willingness. It's a question of friction. So just like every startup that has succeeded has figured out a way to reduce the friction to buy something, sell something, transact in some way, same thing has to be true with voting. And then as blockchain technology and cloud technology both improved over the years, went from a, hey, wouldn't this be cool to, oh, this may actually be doable. And so that was the technology that was used for the 20 elections that we've done so far. At the conclusion of the 20th one, what I realized is there were too many people in the cybersecurity community specifically who still had a lot of concerns and doubts about mobile voting. And I was never going to get them on my side to get to where I needed to go. Even uh, even despite the success you had, I mean, of course, there were small numbers of people small. that were voting, but that, so it, you were uh, not we, making any headway with those. And look, we had supporters, mm -hmm. but at this, and, and look, at the same time, you're a professor at South Carolina in computer science and some reporter calls you on what they wanted from the journal or whatever, and they, they want the antidote to whatever I just said for the their story. You're smart enough to know, I want to be in the story, so I'll give them the call that they're looking for, right? Mm -hmm. um, so part of it is obviously driven by you guys. But nonetheless, I felt like ultimately we're going to have to pass legislation in every state to make mobile voting legal. And 
the institutional powers that be, the people who benefit from low turnout primaries, whether it's the NRA on the right or the NEA on the left or anyone in between, they're not going to want this, right? And yet when people don't want voting expansions, they don't say, I don't want more people to vote. They claim security, right? We have to protect the integrity of the election, that kind of thing. Even in places like Texas and Georgia, those are the kinds of words you hear from people passing laws to make it harder to vote. And so my view was, I have to be able to take the security question off the table. I have to be able to show that this thing is so secure that you may choose not to do it for political reasons, but you shouldn't do it for technical reasons. And so what that NPR story was about is out of my foundation, Tusk Philanthropies, we're providing $10 million in grants to different technology companies to work on mobile voting and to do so in concert with a group put together at Berkeley led by Janet Napolitano, who had been the Homeland Security Secretary of cryptographers and cybersecurity experts and academics who will say, here's what we think mobile voting technology should look like to be secure. And that's what we built in accordance with that. Bradley, changing gears here a little bit, the news has been dominated recently by the testimony of Francis Haugen. And I'm just wondering if you were marshalling Facebook's lobbyists, how would you try and respond to her testimony? If I were them, and I've been urging them through this for a while, and obviously they, they don't listen to me, but I would take a step back and just stop the charade. Part of the reason why I think people don't trust Facebook is they're endlessly pretending that you can have your cake and eat it too. They're telling you you can find your best friend from eighth grade and share pictures of your cat and your data is protected and your privacy is protected. Everything is perfect. And everyone knows that's not true. You are making a transaction with them where in order to use this free service, you are allowing them to monetize your data and to sell that to advertisers to pitch you on stuff. And I actually think consumers can handle that trade-off. And instead, by Facebook constantly lying and saying, no, 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 we've got you covered. We're not doing any of that. No one believes about anything. So it didn't matter what Francis Hawkins said. I actually believe everything she said. But even if she said things that were totally crazy, you'd probably still believe them because we assume the worst about Facebook. And I think Facebook needs to stop this charade and just level with the people and say, look, this is our business model. This is how we make money. If you want it to be for free, here's what we need to do. If you'd rather pay for a subscription, we could do that instead. And just level with people because I think until they do that, all the spin and all the lobbying in the world isn't going to change it. Do you think that they will have to come up with a strategy to pick their regulator? Because it seems clear that Congress is determined to do something. Yeah. So I look, I think Facebook faces challenges on, on four different fronts politically. I don't envy Nick Clegg and, and his to-do list every day. So one is privacy, right? And I think you've got consensus from at least people in both parties that the current structure is broken and something more like GDPR in Europe or the CCPA in California should be the U.S. framework as well. The best thing Facebook has going for them is Washington's total incompetence and dysfunction. But I think actually, if you were able to pull a majority of members of Congress, most people would support some privacy framework. So that's risk number one. Risk number two is the repeal of potentially Section 230 of the Telecommunications Decency Act. Probably most people know what that is who listen to this podcast, but it provides legal liability that shields the platforms from being sued based on the content of what users post. And effectively, it's what has allowed all these platforms to grow and grow and grow. But at the same time, because they don't have any incentive to police 
content or behavior. And because actually the worse people behave, the more clicks they get and the more money they make. We have really perverse incentives. Biden has talked about amending it perhaps through administrative methods. You've heard people in both parties call for the repeal. So that's another risk to Facebook. Third risk is antitrust. They've already had prosecutions launched against them, both by things like 48 states and by the U.S. Department of Justice. One of the suits was recently thrown out of court, but for very arcane legal reasons, it'll come back in some way. And so you could see a world where ultimately a court does force Facebook to break up into three companies, Instagram, WhatsApp, and Facebook proper. And then the fourth is Libra, which is not only the payment system that they want to be able to implement, but ultimately I think they're hedged against new privacy restrictions that limit their ability to monetize people's data, but they can't launch Libra without approval from Washington. And not on the merits of Libra one way or the other, but simply on the merits of the fact that everyone hates Facebook, they can't get that approval. So they've got a lot of challenges and headwinds coming their way. And that's why I think revamping their approach to the whole thing and just even the way that they talk about it is really important. Do you see broader cultural changes happening in the startup world? Do you think the era of move fast and break things may be coming to an end? Companies like, for example, Uber or Lyft pushing the edge of the envelope with regard to city regulations in order to gain market share? So yes and no. Yes, in the sense that when I think about what we talk to our founders about, and we're talking about politics and regulation and media, it's a lot more cautionary than it probably would have been 10 years ago. And so from that perspective, yes, or even just the perspective of not the demise of Facebook, because it's still an incredibly successful company, but the demise of their reputation and the same thing for Google and others has created an opportunity to have startups that really are more privacy focused. I'm working on a social media platform right now for religion, where it is built by religious leaders for people in the religious community. And the idea is to be the anti-Facebook. And we protect your data and we don't monetize it. We don't even have control over it. The community manager and leader does. And so there's business opportunities that come out of that, that I think are shifting it. But on the other hand, if you are an Uber or Lyft or whoever it is, and your ability to operate depends on whether or not you get permission from government or you just go ahead and launch anyway. If it's existential, you're still going to take that risk because if you don't take the risk, you don't exist in the first place. And so there are still startups all the time that are coming on board that are saying, okay, I understand that what I'm doing isn't currently envisioned by the regulations or by the law, but I'm going to do it anyway and work to amend them to, to make sense for me. So I think it's a little bit of both. That's interesting. You said you're working on this social network. Does that mean you are helping to build it or you're investing in it? We came up with the idea. We diligently funded the seed round and are now in beta testing. For it. Is this something new for Tusk? Yeah, it's the first incubation that we've done out of Tusk. We're working on a new one now in the esports gambling space. Look, for us, we're now investing out of our third fund. And for fund one, the question was, is there even room for a fund focused on the intersection of regulation and tech, right? Would anyone take our money? Would anyone want us to help them? And luckily, I think we're able to prove yes. And we're lucky to be early in companies like Coinbase and FanDuel and Lemonade and Bird and Roman and others. So then for fund two, the question was, can we lead rounds? So, okay, people accept us as these experts with really particular value add, but now we want to actually lead the round of financing itself. Will they let us do that? And the answer seems to be yes. We led five of the 19 deals that we did out of fund two. So now that we're investing out of fund three, there's two new questions. Can we lead at least half the deals that we do? And that's obviously by having more money to deploy and makes that a little easier. But the other one is when we see a whole 
in the marketplace, especially because people don't really understand the regulatory climate, sometimes the answer is just go ahead and build it yourself. And I think we now have the infrastructure here, the talent and the money to do that. And so we've gotten our first couple going and you know, our hope is to probably incubate about two companies a year. Last week, I talked with Kevin Ryan, who you may know. Sure. And of course, he's been incubating companies for a long time, but it does seem to some degree of reaction to valuations. You know, you incubate a company, you can own a much bigger swath of it than otherwise. Is that part of the thinking as well? It's part of it, but I think it's more that, at least in the two areas that we're doing right now, nobody was doing that. And there are both things that I had wanted to do and had been looking to invest in something to do it. And either I was making investments that weren't working out because I was believing that these companies could do what I want them to do when they probably never really could, or just wasn't finding it at all. And so to me, it was more a matter of, I think the world will want to evolve in this direction or that direction. And if the market is, doesn't see it or isn't meeting that need, I'll do it myself. And look, these may be the first two incubations out of Tusk, but I've started personally half a dozen companies. So the process for me is not that unusual. You mentioned Roe, which is a men's wellness company. I saw yesterday that Sunday, a lawn care company that you guys had invested in early on, just raised a $50 million Series C. You also have an air cargo deliveries company. Yep. I love the breadth of Tusk Ventures portfolio, but sometimes it's also hard to know what is a deal that's going to capture your interest? I used to think of the outfit as one that finds startups that could use your political expertise, but that doesn't seem to be uniformly the case anymore. It's still the case. I would say a few things. One is, while we've got a pretty diverse portfolio, it's still reasonably concentrated in both digital health and fintech. Probably two-thirds of the portfolio fits into one of those two categories. But second, look, as an early-stage investor, we're looking for all the same things as every other early stage investor. We're looking at the founder and the TAM and obviously the idea and the underlying technology if it exists yet. But then we're also asking ourselves two other questions. One, is there a gating regulatory issue or opportunity that if it were solved could really drive growth and valuation? And if so, two, can we solve it? And when we answer yes to both of those questions, that's when it really makes sense. So like if you use Roe as an example, what Zach Raitano, the, the founder and CEO, really wanted to do was be able to offer people prescriptions obtainable via text message as opposed to having to go see your doctor or even necessarily do a video chat. That was legal in some states, not in others. And so our view was, yes, if you can prescribe via text, it really will lead to an increase in business. Can we make it legal? Or for FanDuel, can we legalize daily fantasy sports betting? Or for Bird, can we legalize e-scooters? Or for Lemonade, can we get them their insurance licenses in every state? And so much of the time it is that. And there are other times where if you take Sunday as an example, the original idea we went into it was, was that we would run campaigns in really left-wing cities like Portland or Austin, where we would mandate the use of organic fertilizer and use that to really create a market for the product. It turned out that Sunday grew so fast, so heavily, so quickly, they just never needed to do it. Maybe it's still something we do at some point. Maybe it's not. But sometimes you just get lucky and the political problem that you think you're going to have never really materializes. I'm curious, what campaigns are you running in the crypto space? You've been posting about it quite often. One of the things you said is that there needs to be a central authority that is managing crypto companies 
Do you see any sign that the Biden administration is coalescing around a united strategy? And not, not in a good way. No, we're now out of it, but we were investors in Coinbase, we're investors in Circle, a couple other companies in the crypto space. So it pay a lot of attention to the regulatory climate, both at the federal level and at the state level. And, and I would say that I, I do see some signs coming out of Washington, out of the SEC, of an acknowledgement that need to deal with crypto. But it still, to me, has this very anti-crypto bias of, oh, this thing is bad and we've got to shut it down or we've got to really contain it. And I feel like Washington still doesn't get it, right? Because to me, the rise in crypto completely mirrors the lack of faith and the reduction in faith in big institutions like the federal government or the church or the media or whatever it is over the last 60 years, both in the US and across the world. People don't like or trust Washington anymore. And people both in the US and in other economies and countries around the world prefer an alternative where they can trade with like-minded people, even if it's totally anonymous and they don't know who they are. And I think that's a really hard thing for Washington to understand because it's a full-on rejection of everything that Washington is about and stands for. But the reason I've been writing about this is we have this incredible opportunity right now, especially with China banning crypto, to really make the U.S. the central hub for this massively growing sector and create a lot of jobs here, right? And yes, it's important to have regulations that prevent fraudulent ICOs and, and provide consumer protection. But at the same time, we should be thinking about this not as a problem, but as an opportunity. And what's the right regulatory framework and structure to encourage the growth of the industry, to figure out policies around taxation that make sense, to figure out who and where regulation should happen. And so that's my hope for it. And in a way, I was optimistic when Janet Yellen became Treasury Secretary because she understands currency. She ran the Fed. I was like, okay, here's someone who really should get this. But Gensler so far, who runs the ICC, most of the noise I've seen out of there has been discouraging. Yeah, I had a chance to talk to the head of the SEC's regional office in San Francisco a couple of weeks ago, and it sounds like there's just nothing, <laughs> nothing yeah. coming uh, anytime soon. It's so interesting that you sold entirely out of Coinbase. Uh, given where it was trading out of the gate, it can't have been a mistake to capitalize on retail investors' enthusiasm, but why sell out of your entire position? Because that's not my skill set and expertise, right? I'm not a, a capital markets expert or, or anything in public equities. The thing that we seem to be decent at are finding really early stage companies, figuring out how we could add value through the regulatory and media side of our work and helping them grow to eventually to some sort of exit, whether it's an IPO or an M&A or something else. Once they become public companies, I don't feel like I have any ability to impact the outcome. Right. So when we're coming in at seed or series A, I think we have a lot of potential impact over the outcome and we're really heavily engaged with the company itself. Once the company goes public, I don't even know if the they take my calls, right? So I generally feel like my LPs pay us to make private investments at early stages. And our job, once that becomes liquid, is to give them their money. Okay. Well, speaking of your LPs, Bradley, let's talk about what I'm guessing is a new fund in the works. So it looks like you announced your last fund at 70 million in 2019. So given the cadence of everything all around you, I assume something's in the works that you probably can't talk about. I can't really talk about it. We are investing out of our third fund and the okay. fund you're talking about is fund two that we closed in 2019. So by deduction, Yes. By deduction to just based on what's happening around us, is this double in size, triple? You know, significantly bigger to, to allow us to 
hopefully lead at least half the deals that, that we do. But at the same time, we still really like being an early stage fund. Every deal that we do, we think has to be able to return the fund and we have to really believe that. You can only take those swings most of the time at seed and A. And so while on one hand, it's good to be well capitalized and while valuations are increasing so much that you need more and more capital now to be able to win deals. You know, if you have a $400 million Series A fund, then you've got to have like five birds in your portfolio just to hit a 3X. I'd rather just raise more and more funds and have them be smaller and be able to, with a couple of clear winners in each fund, be able to deliver a really good return to my investors. So you mentioned Bird. You have a couple of companies coming public through SPAC deals, Bird being one of them, Circle being another, and you had Lemonade, Coinbase. FanDuel, Batch. And then also just some smaller acquisitions of, of companies that we invested in as well. So yeah, look, it's funny because I'm still pretty new to this. We launched our first fund and started investing at it at the end of 2016. So it's about five years ago. And we've had a, a whole bunch of exits, right? So I think for me, it's like, oh yeah, of course that's how it works. And when I talk to people who've been VCs for a long time, they're like, no, that's not how it works. You're just in the middle of a crazy market right now. Yeah, the first three deals we ever did have all exited and we've been really lucky. And so speaking of SPACs, you also, I remember, raised your own last year. Was it a $300 million SPAC? Yes. What's happening on that front? Again, I'm, I'm limited by what I could say because it's, it's a publicly traded company, but I, I have a long history in the regulation of gambling, which probably sounds boring and esoteric to most people. But when I was deputy governor of Illinois, I oversaw the state lottery and the state's casinos. I created the first group on Wall Street to privatize state lotteries. I ran the campaign to build the first casino in New York City, FanDuel, obviously. And so I've got a deep history in it. And to me, the gambling space, the hard part is really politics and, and regulatory, right? Taking bets is not really that complicated. It's convincing regulators to give you a license to take bets and convincing lawmakers to keep expanding the different ways that people can bet on things. And so our SPAC is in the hospitality and, and gaming space. You obviously can't say exactly what we're working on, but it's something that I've been interested in for a long time and we're making good progress. I do wonder how you're thinking about them going forward. If you would raise another, you do have this pretty specific expertise. You do obviously feel very passionate about gaming companies. So is there... Yeah, there is. There's another one that we've lined up, but the combination of not having announced the, the first deal yet, plus sort of the SPAC market obviously taking a beating right now uh, has caused us to not go ahead yet and, and raise the money. But yeah, I mean, to me, there are lots of places where the right regulatory expertise combined with the right company, and this is true whether we're incubating something or investing out of the fund or doing a SPAC can be really, really valuable. And at the moment, I kind of have a monopoly in this space, right? I'm grateful for that. Uh, but other people out of politics haven't really followed suit into what we're doing yet. And so if I've got the whole world of regulation and business to play in, there's a lot of opportunities. And that's why we're raising funds really fast. That's why we're investing really fast. That's why we're incubating. That's why we've got SPACs. Because to me, there's just so much opportunity out there. And it's really limited mainly by how hard I work. And I'm willing to work pretty hard. Bradley, I want to let you go. I really appreciate talking to you. Just one last question. Crypto, interesting. Gaming, interesting. What else are you excited about right now? Crypto gaming are, are definitely two of them. Digital health. So we're investors, we discussed in, in Roe, but also in Wheel and Alma and Boulder Care, and Get Labs and a whole bunch of others. And I really believe in the decentralization of the healthcare system to the point where I think there's a world where hospitals don't even really need to exist and that you can have central locations to perform very specific procedures that have to be done somewhere. 
But by and large, to me, hospitals are massive centers of, of CapEx and places where infections spread. So it's like, who wants to be in a hospital? We're investors in a company called Get Labs, which is an at-home phlebotomy company, where they just come to you to take blood instead of you going into Quest or wherever else. And they've been able to show that's actually a more efficient way to do it. And because of COVID, so many more people got used to getting their healthcare online in one form or another. So we just keep investing in the space because one, there's so many regulatory complexities to it that it really lends itself to our expertise. And two, I just think that we're just scratching the surface of it. It's so interesting. And then all the hospitals become uh, Amazon fulfillment centers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's something like that. You know, you have these hospitals that are raising these multi-billion dollar philanthropic campaigns. And I'm like, I, I don't even know that this is necessary, right? There's a better way to do this. And so, look, I don't think that there's much of a silver lining to COVID, but to the extent that there is one, I do think that it might have produced the emergence of digital health in a way that ultimately does make our healthcare system a lot better. Great. Well, Brandy, again, always a treat to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it, guys. That's it. Thanks for listening, everybody. See you back here next week. Same bat time, same bat channel.